The book of Exodus is a great rescue story, I reckon. And it's one of the great stories in the Bible that tells us so much about God and his people. And I reckon most of us like rescue stories. Um, I don't know, perhaps it's because we like to hear about mighty deeds of a saviour or perhaps we like to see helpless people saved. And um, Barley, thanks for your story. It was a great story and a hard act to follow, I must say. We'll see how we go. Um, Most of you might remember the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race, 1998. It was a pretty wild old time. Sailing conditions were so bad in Bass Strait that they led to the loss of six lives, sinking of at least four yachts, rescue of 54 crew and the retirement of most of the fleet. In fact, only 44 out of 121 boats got to Hobart. In a remarkable search and rescue operation, police, navy and medical rescue helicopters rescued crew members from yachts and life rafts. Mayday, mayday, mayday. We're taking on water rapidly. We are getting the life rafts on deck. This was one of the desperate calls for help from sailors on one of the stricken yachts. These sailors, terrified, soaking wet, freezing cold, at the mercy of the power of the sea and the wind, were clinging to tattered life rafts and dismasted sailboats. They were in a bad place. They were in a hopeless situation, basically. Some of, one of them had, they'd got into these funny, you know, those little plastic life raft things. Well, they're probably a bit better than plastic. But they're unstable in, in, the, um, in the sea and they kept tipping over. One group, actually, a fellow kept getting out every now and often, clung to a rope and pulled it back upright so it had to sit upright. Another group decided not to do that because basically they were running out of air. They need, if, and it, it only breathes if it's upright. One of the other groups left it, tipped over, and cut a hole in the top. Later on, it righted itself. They fell through the hole, and they're at the bottom of the sea. They were in a hopeless situation. These sailors had almost no hope of survival on their own. So they called out for help. Mayday, mayday, mayday. And most were survived from this perilous situation by the largest sea rescue operation in Australian history. Let's have a look at God's rescue operation for his people. Let's pray before we do. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that shows us the mighty deeds that you uh, perform for your people. Lord, uh, help us to open our minds and our hearts to that this morning. Uh, Lord, help me to be true to that word. And um, Father, help us to... Listen to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've got your Bible open at chapter 1 that Jill's just read for us um, and the outline in the bulletin, let's get into it. And so when we, we begin the book of Exodus, it looks like Israel is in a pretty hopeless situation. And to understand the significance of that, we probably need to have a look at how God's people have ended up in Egypt anyway. Here they are, living in a foreign land, not their own land. But that's no accident, because God has been working in his people's lives well before they arrive in Egypt. Let's think back to Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham to be the father of a great nation. In verse 2 in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And God made this promise even though 
Abraham is old. He was a real old codger. And his wife is barren. She couldn't have any family. So how was this to be? To be? But God worked a miracle and Abraham has a son, Isaac. And then Isaac's wife couldn't have babies as well, but miraculously she has twins, one of whom is Jacob. And we know the story of Jacob's shenanigans and, and um, the way he tricked his brother out of his birthright and his father's blessing. But Jacob then has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. We know Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. But that was the good news, really. We know of God's blessing of Joseph as he became a person of great influence in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, in fact. And he helped to make Egyptian nation the strong nation that it was. But then we see the famine in the land of Canaan and the remnant of Israel, Jacob and his family, flees to Egypt to survive the famine and they're reunited with Joseph. And that's how God's people, Israel, have come to be living in Egypt. If you go to point two on your outline. And as we know, Egypt was a great land. It's got this mighty Nile River running through it. It's got fertile soils. The annual flooding that used to happen used to deposit silt and fertile nutrients on the floodplain. It was a great place. And in this great land, Israel was fruitful and multiplied greatly. We read that the land was filled with them. But over time, Joseph and his generation passed away. And this situation created a problem both for Israel and for Egypt. If we read in verse 8, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So about 400 years had passed since Israel had moved to Egypt, say about 15 or 20 generations. And important things can get forgotten over a long period of time like that. And the new king didn't know about Joseph and all the, you know, the great things that he had done for Egypt. And by increasing in numbers, Israel was now considered a threat. So they became slaves, forced to work for the benefit of the king. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard work in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. These were tough times for Israel. They had previously lived and prospered in Egypt, but now they were forced into slavery, not just as servants of the king, but a ruthless slavery of hard labour. But God had not abandoned his people. Remember the covenant he made with Abraham? He would make him into a great nation. And even though the Israelites were being oppressed, God was still increasing their numbers all the time, as he said he would. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God was beginning to fulfil his covenant. And in the next few verses, we see another illustration of God working in his people's lives to build this great nation. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. 
but if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. When the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Despite Pharaoh's attempts to control the Israelites, God is still working to fulfil his covenant with his people. We see the irony of the powerful earthly king being unable to keep God from carrying out his plans for his people. But while we can marvel at how God works in the lives of his people, we must also consider the absolute cruelty and callousness of the Egyptian king. Think about how this decree would be today and how utterly gut-wrenching it would have been then that if your baby is a boy, Pharaoh says that it must be killed. As I was preparing this talk, I thought about Mary Lynn Turrell and Lynn Whalen, two of our ladies here in Morning Church who were midwives and postnatal nurses. Imagine Lynn and Mary Lynn heading off to work at Dubbo Base Hospital to attend a birth, knowing that there was a 50-50 chance of the baby being a boy who would then have to be killed. Imagine the mother who's carried the baby for nine months in her womb only to have it taken from her once it's born. Imagine the little baby boy snatched away as soon as it enters the world, never to know his mother's touch and love, taken away and killed. Can you imagine that? Could you think that could really happen? It's just unthinkable. But that's what the king of Egypt ordered to happen. And I thought about my son Thomas, and the excitement and joy and wonder and great blessing I felt when he was born. And I just could not contemplate the possibility of him being immediately taken away and killed. It's just too monstrous just to even think about. But even in this horrendous situation in Egypt, we also see God looking after his people. Verse 20, So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. However, Pharaoh was not to be denied. He persisted in his attempt to suppress Israel. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl live. Think about that. Every boy, every baby boy thrown into the Nile to drown. Imagine the fear and dread and heartbreak in the Israelite people. Imagine the anxiety of the pregnant mothers. Imagine the Egyptian soldiers moving through the towns and villages along the Nile, checking for newborn baby boys, snatching them from their mother's arms and flinging them heartlessly into the river and watching them drown. It's into this world of oppression and persecution that Moses is born. On to point three on your outline. Now the story of Moses' birth and early life is very familiar to us all. And it's sometimes easy to think that it's a bit cute, really. A little baby boy put in a basket, floating on the river, being found by Pharaoh's daughter and then taken to live in the palace. But it's very important that we remember the context, the absolutely desperate situation his family were in and the desperate situation God's people were in. Here was a king who was determined to destroy God's plan 
to build his people into a great nation. He was a king who was actively working against God and his people. He was a king who wanted to enslave and control God's people and prevent them from multiplying. He was a king who appeared to be wrecking God's plans for his people. Now we don't know much about Moses' mother except that she was a Levite, as was her husband. But we know that she gave birth to a baby boy who Pharaoh wanted killed. And imagine how she desperately hid the baby so that he wouldn't be discovered. Imagine how difficult it would have been to keep the baby quiet to avoid detection. And all of you parents know how hard that is. But after three months, she gives up. She could hide him no longer. So she comes up with a desperate plan in an attempt to give her precious baby boy a chance to survive. She puts him in a basket and floats it on the Nile. In chapter 2, verse 3, But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now this is the same Nile River that Pharaoh has ordered the baby boys to be thrown into and drowned. What was she thinking? What did she actually expect to happen? Did she really expect her baby to survive? Like the Sydney Hobart sailors who abandoned their boats and crouched fearfully inside those tiny, vulnerable, inflatable life rafts, did she fully expect Moses to perish alone and abandoned? What were the chances of this little baby surviving? What were the chances of an Egyptian soldier finding him and holding his head under the water till he stopped struggling? And then sink to the bottom. But amazingly, we see Pharaoh's daughter find the baby and not have it killed, but want to keep it for her own. Was that part of Moses' plan, mother's plan? We don't know. But even more amazingly, we see Moses' mother being paid to nurse him until he can go to live in safety in Pharaoh's household. Verse 8. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Again, we see God working a little irony to foil the Pharaoh's plans and rescue his people. After growing up in Pharaoh's household, at the age of 40, Moses goes out to the Israelites, his own people. But the oppression of his people is too much for him. He sees an Egyptian beating up one of his own people, So he kills him. Moses then flees from his own people and also the household where he was raised and becomes a refugee in a foreign land. He lived in Midian for about 40 years before God called him into action. But we'll leave Moses there for the time being and we'll get to know a lot more about him next week. If you go to point four on your outline, we're back to the grim situation in Egypt. For the Israelite people enslaved under the mighty Pharaoh, these were unbelievably tough times. It seemed like there was no future to look forward to. There was absolutely no hope. Listen to how their misery is described in chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. During that long period, the Israelites suffered, they groaned, and they cried out. This would have been a time when Israel could think there was no future, that there absolutely was no hope. 
They could have been thinking, why is this happening to us? They could have been thinking, where is God now when we are suffering? They could have been thinking that God had abandoned them. But things were happening. Even though the Israelites couldn't see it at the time, God had not abandoned them. And even though it would have seemed to the Israelites that there was no reason for hope, but there was reason for hope because of one thing, that in the past, God had made a promise. He had made a covenant with his people. His promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. If there had been no promise, then there probably would have been no hope. Let's go to verse 24 to see how God had not forgotten his people, even though they were still enslaved in Egypt. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God was listening. He heard their call for help. He heard their mayday call. And God remembered his covenant with his people. Now, a covenant is a solemn promise to engage in or refrain from a specified action. Basically, it's a requirement to do a specific thing or to not do a specific thing. And it's different to a contract because it's a one-way agreement whereby the covenanter, the person that made the covenant, is the only party bound by the promise. So consequently, the only party that can break a covenant is the covenanter. Now, in my job... I work for the Department of Lands and my main job is to implement the Crown Land Reforms and one of the big things that we do is a process of converting perpetual leasehold land, Crown Land, into freehold land. And part of the process of doing that, we do an assessment of each parcel of land and if it has environmental values that are important, then we place a covenant on that land before it's converted to freehold. And the covenant is to protect those environmental values. And what the covenant does, it applies a restriction on use to that land. And the holder of that land is unable to do certain things. Generally, it's a patch of bush on the land, which the holder of the land is not allowed to clear or not allowed to develop. And in all cases, the land is unable to be subdivided in the future. So the covenants are being applied to that land as it's converted to freehold. And the covenants will always apply to that particular parcel of land, no matter who owns the land. If the land is sold, the covenants still apply to the land and the new owner is bound by the covenant. The covenant covenants will remain on the title of that land in perpetuity. So that means they will continue to be in place into the future, despite any changes in the owners or generations of families or governments. Only the covenanter the crown or the minister, can, vary, can agree to vary, rescind or remove the covenant. And these covenants are pretty strong and good. They're backed up by the law, but they're imperfect because people can choose to ignore them or dishonour them at their peril. God's covenant is the only perfect covenant and will always be honoured. In the Bible... The word covenant refers to this solemn agreement made between God and his people. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, this is what God said to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that was a long time ago, before the, where we see Israel now, and the situation for God's people has changed a lot since then. They're living in a foreign land, generations have passed, kings have come and gone, but God's covenant has not changed. God has kept his promise to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, despite all of the human weaknesses and failings of his people over that time. God has remained faithful to his promise, as we've seen the Israelites multiplying in great numbers. So importantly, we need to now look at how God fulfills his covenant with his people today. Point five on your outline. The covenant we've been talking about so far is the Old Testament covenant made between God and his people to let them know what God would do for them and to describe how they should live in response to this. We've seen how the Israelites were suffering in Egypt and their life was out of their control. Well, life for us today can seem a bit like that at times too, can't it? We all have things go wrong, accidents happen, relationships get broken, circumstances change and things just get out of control. We get into tight situations. We get squeezed with the pressures of life. We sometimes even end up in situations of great danger. Well, God wants us to know that he has made a promise to us as well. Not that things will always be good or easy, but that he has a plan for his people if we remain faithful to him. But unlike Moses and the Israelites... We Christians, those who belong to God through the death of his son, live on this side of the cross and have a new covenant. The first covenant, or the old covenant, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, the ark and all the special things that went along with that. Gifts and sacrifices had to be offered by the priests as atonement for the sins of themselves and the sins of the people. These gifts and sacrifices had to be offered on a regular and ongoing basis. Only the priests could enter the tabernacle to come before God and offer sacrifices. But only the high priest could enter the inner room, and only once a year, and always with blood which he offered for himself and the sins of the people. However, through his death on the cross, Jesus Christ has brought in a new covenant, a new way that God relates to his people, one that has done away with the old covenant. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice before God on our behalf. He sacrificed his own life, shed his own blood, so that we could come before God. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus has made it possible for all people on earth to be blessed, not just the Israelites. Those who believe in his death and resurrection, his sacrifice on our behalf, will be able to come to God and know him personally. Jesus has brought in the new covenant, a better covenant, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. That's great news. If you've accepted him as your Lord and Saviour, for those of us who have accepted Jesus as the fulfilment of God's promise, we can now understand that we have a Bible that is full of God's promises and we can be confident that God will fulfil those promises. God has kept his covenant through Jesus Jesus has kept God's promises by bringing in the new covenant. 
But if you haven't accepted Jesus as the fulfilment of God's promise, can I urge you to think very seriously about what I've been saying. You may be under the impression that the way to be on the right side of God is to keep all of his commandments, to be a good person, to go to church on every Sunday, help old ladies across the road perhaps, give money to charities, just like the old covenant. Well, these are good and honourable things to do, and we should be doing such things with our time and money, but they will not guarantee forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. These are things that we do, but they don't count because we don't make the covenant. The only way we can have the right relationship with God in this life and for all of eternity is to accept Jesus Christ as our Saviour. Because the only covenant that matters is the new covenant, the covenant sealed by the blood that Jesus sacrificed for you and for me. If you haven't yet accepted God's promise revealed in Jesus, please understand that you need a saviour in order to have eternal life and God's blessing. Just like Israel needed Moses and the Sydney Hobart sailors need the search and rescue helicopters, you need Jesus to rescue you and deliver you from death. God has made his promise. God hears our cries. God is waiting to hear your cry for help. And when you call on him, he will respond and deliver you, just as he promised.